BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Just as we do with the census, every 10 years, it's time to update some things in the weather world too. Among those are the climate averages we use in our almanac data. Today's guest is here to talk about our climate new normals and help us understand what that actually means for us. Jared Rennie is a research meteorologist at the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies and is here to provide some insight on the hows and whys on the need to update these averages. Jared, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm an avid listener of the podcast and the TV show that was prior. So um, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, and you know, I'm, you're someone that I've known for some time, and I know you're a certified weather geek. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, and with all podcast guests, you know what I'm going to ask first, how'd you become a weather geek? Yeah, so, you know, I've listened to all these responses and, you know, a lot of the responses are about a very specific weather event. And, you know, what's interesting is that 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 weather event kind of sparked a, you know, a passion for weather for people. For me, it actually sort of sparked fear. Um, My story is interesting. Um, One of the interesting things is that I actually don't remember specifically when it happened. It was a it was a traumatizing experience for me that I sort of kind of shunned out the date in my mind. So, you know, I actually, you know, I'm a climatologist, you know, in my day-to-day activities, I could go back and look at the weather on this particular day, but I cannot remember the day specifically. Um, what I what I do remember is that it was in the late 1990s. Um, I was a Boy Scout and we were out on a camping trip in uh, Massachusetts, which is where I'm from. And we had uh, one night, we, we all went to sleep in our tents. And overnight, we all were awoken to a thunderstorm, which kind of threw us off guard because typically in New England, when we have, you know, summertime convection or thunderstorms, you know, they usually happen, you know, in the afternoon, in the evening, you know, a sharp cold front will come through, produce a line of thunderstorms, you know, a lot of lightning. And, you know, that's pretty much it. Um, the, the fact that it happens overnight is sometimes rare up in that area. So again, this was in the late 1990s, sometime in the summertime. And we all woke up to pretty intense lightning, really loud thunder. And, um, you know, we believe that there was a lightning strike not too far from us. And it really shook us. And it really shook me in particular. Um, it actually created sort of a fear of thunderstorms. And um, as a result, I started becoming very interested in what the weather was going to be, you know, before a camping trip. So, you know, I would watch my, you know, local TV news in the in the Boston market and uh, watch the meteorologists there. Um, But they were only on, you know, during the your typical news hours, you know, five, six, 10 p.m. or whatever. Um, So 
I actually became an avid uh, viewer of the Weather Channel because it was 24-hour coverage. Uh, so whenever a weather event would happen or a severe weather event, I would watch, you know, the Weather Channel. I would watch Dr. Greg Forbes, you know, kind of go through, you know, talk about the velocity and the, and the reflectivity of the radar as it was coming into the area. Um, and then also watching the, the the interesting graphics on the local on the eights, kind of prepare for for the weekend camping trip or whatever we were doing that weekend. And it kind of sort of sparked a passion in weather, but still fueled by fear to sort of be prepared. You know, the, the, the motto of the Boy Scouts is to be prepared. So it was a way for me to prepare for camping trips. And then when it came time for college, I went, well, you know, I love weather. I, I love numbers. I love math. So um, I love putting things on a map. So that's kind of what led me to go pursue my career in meteorology. And speaking of that career, let me give you a little bit of Jared's background. As, as you heard me mention in the intro, he's a research meteorologist and, and he carries the climatologist moniker as well. And we can certainly talk about the differences between those two because they are different. Uh, he's at the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies. He's a member of the AMS board for early career professionals. He's a, uh, chaired that, that board. He's been on the steering committee for the AMS Early Career Leadership Academy, and he co-chaired the conference for early career professionals. So I'm going to talk to him a little bit later about his engagement in some of these early career activities, because I think that's important. Uh, in 2019, December, he received their certificate in geographic information systems, GIS, which for those of you listening, future meteorologists, climatologists, that's huge. And so I want to pick Jared's brain on that, has a master of science from Plymouth State University and a major with applied meteorology and a bachelor of science also from Plymouth State University in meteorology where he was magna cum laude. So this is someone that knows this stuff and he's super smart at doing it too. So thank you for joining us. I want to kind of just dive right in because you hear, I think people when they watch their local news and they hear uh, oh, the average temperature, the, uh, that's three degrees warmer than normal today, or uh, we had, you know, one inch more than normal of rainfall, blah, blah, blah. I think people sort of conceptually have in their mind what they think they know about meteorological or climatological averages. But let's start there, Jared. What are these averages? And then from there, we'll move into a discussion about what climate normals are and why they change. But let's just start. When, when, when people hear the average temperature or so forth, tell us a little bit about what that is and how it's arrived at. Yeah, sure. So it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's not an easy answer per se. So, you know, when we, you know, it, I always like to come back to you know what what the audience is. So if we're talking about the public or broadcast meteorology, you know, normal is you know basically what you perceive the weather to be for a particular day or a particular month. So when you when you hear on TV, you know, today's high temperature is going to be 80 degrees, which is three or four degrees warmer than normal, you're what they're saying is that on this particular day over the past 30 years, you typically have a high temperature of, you know, some some place in the upper 70s. Um, and, and the same thing goes for precipitation. You know, it, it may be a very rainy day, but, you know, it may not has been may not have been has been as wet as other times. Um, so we take into account sort of the past 30 years. We take a snapshot of that 30 years and create what we call, you know, a climatological normal or average, and um, it's a, it's a, it's not as simple 
as, you know, taking 30 years of data and just, you know, adding them up, dividing it by 30. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and we can probably get into the more details of that later. But, um, but yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to, to think about that when you look at other sectors as well, you know, you, you may think of, you know, agriculture, you know, they may, they may not necessarily need to know that, you know, the high temperature is typically 78 degrees today, but what they might want to know is, well, when do you typically see the number of freeze days or frost days in a given year? So they may want to know that, you know, the last frost occurs on, let's say March 31st. So they want to know that information so that when they, they can plant you know, their crops accordingly. And then also in another sector, if you think of the energy sector, you know, in the summertime, there's a high demand for, you know, air conditioning. And in the wintertime, there's a high demand for, for heating. And they need to know, you know, what that load is during the summers and winters. And so we have these things called degree days in which they, they get computed and they use that to kind of help determine that. So it's interesting, you know, I always like to say that weather is, you know, it's a very, people like to use weather as small talk, you know, oh, you know, the weather's outside is nice today, but it encompasses a lot of our lives, you know, from when we wake up to go to bed, driving to work, you know, eat what foods we eat and, um, you know, where we go, what we do, you know, weather has a huge impact and as a result, so do the normals. And recently, NOAA, which is an organization that you work closely with uh, there in Asheville or so, announced that the normals were being updated. Walk us through why that is, and then I, I, you know, I, I will get into it probably in the next section because I think it has some implications for how we assess climate and climate change, and there are some that are concerned that as our climate warms or as our rainfall patterns and frequency and intensities change, as we update these normals, we may be undercutting the amount of climate change. And I want to get into some of that discussion a bit later, but tell us why NOAA updates these climate normals and what are the implications of that? Yeah, so the WMO, which is the World Meteorological Organization, um, they created this mandate a few decades ago that says that uh, every 10 years, we need to, you know, kind of take a snapshot of the last 30 years of data and provide those as climatological normals. You know, again, it's like the U.S. Census, you know, they're asked every 10 years to provide an update on all these statistics about where people live and who they are and what they do. It's kind of the same thing for climate. They ask us every 10 years to, to do the same thing for temperature normals, precipitation normals, and others just like snowfall. So, uh, the process is um, it takes a it takes a little while because we gather you know a lot of data as you mentioned Marshall I'm located in Nashville North Carolina uh, there's a building called the National Centers for Environmental Information and their their task is to basically archive all of the world's weather data so if you if you ever wanted to know you know what the weather was like on your birthday or if you ever wanted to know what the weather was for a certain historical period you're probably gonna get the data from ncei so they're asked because they have all this data uh they're asked every 10 years to provide an update to these normals so you know and they usually do it at the end of a decade so you know 
we just finished out the 1981, the 2010 normals. And now we've been asked to do it for 1991 to 2020. So we, what we do is we have all of these weather stations across the US. Um, there, in fact, I think we have about 15,000 stations in the US, which includes Alaska, Hawaii, and uh, Puerto Rico, and all the other occupying territories, Guam, um, and whatnot. So, uh, we have all these weather stations and they come from various different networks. So, you know, most people think of, you know, airport, airport weather stations are in here. There's uh, volunteer weather observers that report um, precipitation and temperature information. Um, there's other networks this time around as well. The, there's another network called COCORAS, the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. That just started about 15 years ago, so they weren't able to make it into the last round of normals, but they were able to be incorporated this year. And so we have all these different stations, and we use that to essentially, it's sort of our starting ground for normals. Now, they run through an extensive set of quality control. So any data that is, you know, it seems a little different, a little outside of, you know, what they expect it to be, it, they sort of get removed or flagged, as we call it. I want to pause then, right, I want to pause you right there, because I know that I knew you were going to say that, but what do you say to the skeptic crowd out there that's, oh, you're cooking the data, or you're manipulating the data with this quality control? Can you talk about why quality control is necessary? Well, it's important because one, if we, you know, if you're looking at precipitation, if you have, you know, if you have a daily value of, you know, 100 inches, that might be questionable. Maybe it got entered in wrong. Maybe it was actually 10 inches or one inch, you know, and they just put the decimal in the wrong spot. So we have all these computer algorithms that will try to, you know, to look for those things and then to remove them. The other thing we do, especially with temperature data, is we do, uh, this is, this is going to be a, a long word. It could be a little complicated. It's called homogenization. Hey, let's and, geek out. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when I talk to the public about homogenization, they think, oh, well, what does milk have to do with it? So, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a process by which we sort of, you know, look for, you know, inconsistencies in the data that may not be flagged by quality control. So, for example, you have a, a, a weather station that may have had an update to its instrumentation. You know, maybe it's thermometer got updated or maybe it got moved. Maybe if it's an airport weather station, it may have moved from, you know, one end of the airport to the other. Um, the time it got observed, you know, maybe a 24 hour uh, value was based upon a report that happened at 7 a.m. versus at midnight or 12 p.m. So these, what these things happen is that it creates these small changes that you may not find in quality control, but it sort of creates this inconsistency in what, when we're looking at the long-term average. So what homogenization does is tries to take care of, take, take care of that. And it doesn't remove the data per se, but it sort of uh, manipulates it in a way that better reflects the long-term trend. Now that, that can be hard because from a climate skeptic standpoint, they'll go, oh, well, you're changing the numbers, you're changing the data. Technically speaking, yes, we're changing the data, but it's because of all these statistical you know, anomalies or inconsistencies that we're finding and we're accounting for that. Yeah, and that's, that's the process. And it's something that we as scientists have done for some time. But I just wanted to mention that because I know that there are people that 
uh, think that there are some manipulation or these types of things going on. This is a part of all large data sets. I'm going to take a break right here and come right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Jared Rennie, and he's a meteorologist slash climatologist. And we're talking about the new update to the climate normals. And Jared did a nice job of explaining what those were. As we're taping this podcast, uh, we are in the day after the first day of the Atlantic hurricane season. And I think, Jared, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think when I saw some of the projections from NOAA and perhaps some of the other folks uh, for hurricane season, even the normals in terms of what a normal Atlantic hurricane season looked like, were those things adjusted as well as we did this normal update? You know what? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, this is a this is a good point in which I should point out that you know I'm I've been certified by AMS as a certified consulting meteorologist, and one of the things they talk about is you know talk about things or you know talk about things that you you know that you you believe to be an expert in, but when there's things that you don't know, don't try to be an expert in it. So um, I will answer that by saying I'm actually not sure when it comes to the 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 tropical information, I, it may have been, but I can't, I can't confirm that. That might be something that the National Hurricane Center or maybe Rick Nab of the Weather Channel could, could provide. I know he was just on the podcast recently. Um, I, I cannot remember. And honestly, I, I, I'm not sure as well, which is why, I mean, certainly it, it's, it's not clear. I thought that I saw something in NOAA press release, which suggested that the even the what they were basing a normal hurricane season in terms of number of major storms, name storms, et cetera. I thought that I saw something about uh, the reference to the normal, but we will certainly get clarity on that. So watch watch the Weather Geeks uh, Twitter or uh, Facebook feed or my Facebook or Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Shepard 2013. I will get the answer to that for those that are listening, but I, I think that is correct. So you've talked a little bit about the process You've talked about what climate normals and homogenization are. What do you, and by the way, shout out to Mike Pilecki, your colleague there in Asheville, good friend of both of ours, who I know is a big part of this uh, new normal update as well. I now saw him in the media quite a bit. So shout out to Mike Pilecki there at NOAA and NCEI and all the folks there. What do you say? I know, for example, my colleague Dave Robinson, state climatologist at New Jersey, I wrote an article about this in Forbes, and he was concerned or mentioned that the way this is done may mute or suppress the climate warming or climate change in general, not just temperature related signal. So for example, if the next, this most recent 30 year update shows a baseline temperature that's warming, uh, there's concern by some that then that sort of mutes the sort of background warming signal. Talk a little bit about that and, and how you think about that issue. Yeah, that's that's a concern to have. I actually pulled some numbers. I know you all you're you're all down in Atlanta, so I actually just pulled out um, some data for the month of June, which is this is the month that yeah this is the month that we're recording. Um, you know, in the old normals, the 1981 to 2010 normals in Atlanta, down at the airport, June typically has a high temperature of about 86.4 degrees Fahrenheit. 
That was in the old normals. In the new normals, the 1991 to 2020, it increased. It increased about 0.7 degrees. So now it's 87.1 degrees Fahrenheit. So as a result, it's going to be harder to say, well, you're going to have a higher than normal day. It's going to be harder to have that. You know, 0.7 might not seem like much, but in, in a climatological sense, that's that's pretty high. So um, it's going to be harder to say that you know, you have so many days in the month of June that's higher than normal. And, and that's a concern that I know people have brought up. So I thought about this and it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of like a weather versus climate kind of, you know, issue here, you know, as you and others have said, weather is your mood, climate is your personality. So, you know, from a weather standpoint, you know, going back to broadcast meteorologists, that when they say that, you know, today's high temperature is, you know, typically, let's say 80 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, that from, from the public's perception, you know, they may want, they, they'll want to know, you know, what, what it's like recently. So they'll, okay, well, this is typical of the past, you know, the most recent climate, the past 30 years or the past 15 years. And so from a weather perspective, that might be pretty good to update this every 10 years because you may not you don't you don't necessarily want to say well this is typical of a day in the 1950s because you know we you know maybe not a lot of us lived in the 1950s so you know, i think from a weather standpoint it's okay to update these 10 year or excuse me these 30 year normals every 10 years but from a climate perspective that's a harder one to justify because as we were just talking about, you are sort of, you know, muting this, you know, this signal that we're seeing this warming over the past few decades. So, you know, what do we do as a result? So there's sort of two things we can do. One is to just, you know, as you had alluded to, just kind of stick to one 30 year period and stick to it. I know a few groups, you know, you know, I, 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 I partner with NOAA, but there's other groups out there. There's NASA, there's the, the UK Met Office, there's the Berkeley Earth Groups. You know, they, um, I know NASA, what they do is they actually stick with one base period, one 30-year base period and stick with that, and they don't change that. Um, so by doing that, you'll be able to get the same, you know, consistent results over time. Another way to do it is to pick a longer-term period and then just stick with that. So, and it, NCEI and NOAA actually do that in some of their long-term climate uh, talks is that they actually stick with the 20th century average. So that's, you know, hundred years from 1901 to 2000. And they actually stick with that. So if you ever go to the um, NCEI website and look at some of their reports, they're actually basing most of that off of that hundred year period and sticking with it. Yeah, one of the things that I mean, I, I think, and then, and I'm you and I saw some of this discussion because I think I actually shared something or tweeted something, and there was some discussion among meteorologists and climatologists about normal versus average and what's confusing to the public. And I, I think your comments there really kind of highlight why that could be. Um, you know, one of the things that one of the producers wrote in in some of the production notes is. Uh, so while we often talk about warming for many locations across the globe, some locations have actually gotten cooler in these recent normal updates. 
and we know this, I mean, <laughs> you know, this is the whole thing that happens every time it's cold or snowing and you get people tweeting at us like, what happened to global warming? It's snowing. I said, well, you live in Boston and it's January. That's normal. <laughs> but um, I think people have this sort of perception that when we talk about climate warming or global warming or changes in rainfall, it's just sort of all one big signal. And in fact, we know that there's spatiotemporal space and time variability that we see. So talk about this. And indeed, there were places in, in this new normal update where some places got cooler than normal or perhaps drier. Is that right? Yeah. And that's something that we thought was really interesting, because as you said, there's all these you know temporal differences and spatial differences across the U.S. So, you know, when we update these normals, you know, we like to do a difference between, you know, this 30 year period, 1991 to 2020 and the old period, 1981 to 2010. But what we're really doing is we're just basically comparing two different decades. So, you know, we're we're adding the 2010 decade and we're removing the 1980s decade. So what happened between those two decades? And that's an interesting question. So, you know, generally speaking, you know, you are seeing a warmer trend over time throughout that period. And I had said that, you know, I think it's like five or six out of the last 10 years have been the warmest on record. And the 2010s was clearly the warmest decade on record. So as a result, you are going to see a lot of areas in the U.S. that are red or, you know, a lot warmer in the normals. But that's not necessarily the case, especially in the upper Midwest. So parts of the Dakotas, um, you know, Minnesota, Montana up there, they're actually seeing some cooler differences and not by much, you know, maybe a degree or less, but it's there. And, you know, we're actually investigating as to why that is. Um, one of the things we're, we're thinking about is, again, if we're looking at just the 2010s decade, is that, you know, a lot of our winters, you know, as you had pointed out earlier, you know, we did have some cold winters, you know, you, you know, we did have the, the polar vortex, you know, a few, a few years ago, and even though it's not a new thing, but it's, you know, it, it certainly happened for a couple, couple years. And, you know, why was that the case? So we need to start looking at sort of the atmosphere and what happened. Um, and, you know, gonna get gonna get a little technical here. But, you know, if you're looking at hey, weather levels, geeks, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting my for the for the weather geeks, I'm putting my synoptic meteorology hat on. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, different levels of the atmosphere, different uh, pressure levels, you know, so there's like 500 millibar or hectopascal, and then there's like the 250 level. So you're looking at, you know, you're looking at vorticity areas, you're looking at uh, the jet stream, you know, are we seeing a waviness of the jet stream or are we seeing this jet stream kind of um, get a little lower over the past decade? And as a result, if you have that jet stream, you know, that polar jet stream come down lower, you're obviously bringing in colder, colder air, essentially the polar vortex. So if you're seeing enough of that in this decade, or excuse me, in the 2010s decade and not in the 1980s decade, then you are going to see obviously some cooling in this area. So, you know, this is an ongoing process. We are, we're trying to look into the literature. We're going to, our plans are to, you know, write a journal article about this um, to see, you know, some of these synoptic differences. And the same can be said for precipitation. You know, some of the wettest years on record happened, you know, within the past decade, which is why parts of the Eastern U.S., especially in the Southeastern U.S., have seen a, a lot more wetter conditions. But, 
parts of the Western US are drier. And, you know, we've had a lot more droughts back, you know, over the past, you know, 10 years, um, especially in California. Uh, so, you know, you have to take those into account, you know, though they're more, they might be more extreme now versus back in the 80s. And then, you know, the, the last thing we're looking at is these teleconnections, you know, there's all these um, teleconnections that are happening across the globe that could be influencing this, you know, the most common one is ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, but there's other ones as well, like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, um, the AMO, uh, there's a whole bunch of acronyms that have different oscillations. The alphabet the, soup of teleconnections, exactly, uh, Arctic uh, Oscillation, MJO, ENSO, exactly. PDO. Right. So it could be it could be some of those that are influencing it, that as well. So it's really fascinating. And this is this is why I love where I work, because we have the data. It's just basically this big sandbox for us to go play with the data and see what comes out. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Jared Rennie who is a meteorologist and a climatologist and uh, working closely with uh, Kicks and also uh, Asheville folks there, then uh, NCEI and NOAA folks. So he's, he's very active in AMS, just a very solid citizen of the weather climate community. So I appreciate having him on the, the podcast. So one of the things you were saying there in that last segment, I think it's one of the things I always emphasize, and I know you talk about this as well as we talk about climate change and sort of the manifestations and attributions of our current weather it's the extremes that get people's attention and where the changes are irrespective of the sign whether it's extreme cold event or extreme heat wave or an extreme drought or extreme flood they're all connected to those sort of wavy patterns in the atmosphere that Jared talked about associated with our jet stream. If you think about the 2021 cold air intrusions uh, that were associated with a breach in the polar vortex and the Texas sort of fiasco, that's really the only way I can put it, frankly, uh, given the fact that we saw meteorologically and climatologically in some ways that it was going to happen and could be pretty bad. And there was certainly time for, to prepare a little bit better, I think, in my opinion. Uh, so I think that's, you know, I think Jared's point really is, as we talk about these normals versus averages, the extremes are what people feel. And that's what's going to disrupt society the most. Uh, not these little 0.7. The 0.7, as you heard, for example, for example, Atlanta is huge. That's a big change. But how those changes, background and average changes are shifting the distribution of these extremes is something that we have to keep an eye on as well. Jared, one thing that was of interest to me uh, as someone that has been around this for a while is we do these normal updates every 10 years, but it feels like it got far more attention in the media this year. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a good question. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, somebody, somebody asked, well, why don't we do these updates every year, you know, have a 30 year or 15 year normal every year. And uh, you know, that's a, that's a good question, but, you know, I think one of the reasons is because it, this takes, you know, it takes a lot of effort to produce these normals, just like it takes a lot of effort to produce this, the census every decade. Um, plus, you don't necessarily want to be, you know, 
updating numbers every year because it, again it goes back to public perception you know you know all the high, typical high is 85 this year next year it's 87 the next year it's 88 you know that that can create some confusion um why was it so popular this year you know have to think about what happened in the past 10 years you know i think for me personally you know social media has become a, a huge part of our lives you know with um you know with twitter and facebook and instagram and you know there's new ones out there like TikTok and and others so i mean it, the, the social media world has sort of exploded so just the constant need for information especially in the weather and climate uh, the weather water and climate enterprise it just sort of exploded um so i think there's there's that there's a lot of interest um i think the other thing is you know when it comes to climate change people are starting to think about this more you know, um, you know, my, my boss, Dr. Otis Brown, who's the director of the Institute, he, he has always said, you know, when it comes to these things like weather and climate, it goes, why should I care? You know, why should I care about these numbers? Why should I care that it's 0.7 degrees higher in Atlanta? And it, it, sometimes it's hard to answer that question, but, you know, I always come back to what you've talked about, Dr. Shepard, with, you know, kitchen table issues. And I think these issues have kind of been you know, percolated up over the past 10 years as a result of these, partially as a result of these extreme events with all the heat waves that have happened in the past 10 years, you know, the warmest years on record, even these cold snaps, you know, with the polar vortex, with what happened in Texas earlier this year, with all these precipitation events, you know, like Hurricane Harvey down in Texas, Hurricane Florence in North Carolina, um, the prevalence of all these hurricanes, you know, all these, you know, cat category four or five hurricanes that made landfall, people have started to become really interested in the, the weather events and also, you know, the climate piece behind it. And I think that that kind of helped when, when the normals came out, you know, earlier this year. Okay, I want to pivot for this last segment of the discussion because I you, you mentioned several things that I just want to briefly highlight. One, you're very engaged in the early career professionals, uh, board or commission committee there at AMS. Tell us a little bit why that's so important to you and why you're so engaged. Yeah, so I, you know, I have been very interested in AMS um, since I was in college. And, you know, every year they have, you know, an annual conference that people go to and talk about their work, but also, you know, meet up with people in the field. And, you know, I went as a student, um, because partially because I was funded to go and had, you know, I learned a lot, had a great time there. But then as I transitioned into my first career, you know, the opportunities to go were, were a lot harder to do. And it turned out that AMS, the national organization, actually realized this. They actually noticed that there was this gap between, you know, students involved in AMS and then people, you know, farther along in their career, whether it's mid or late. So this, this gap in what they call these early career professionals um, was something that they wanted to address. So about 10 years ago, they formed a board called the Board for Early Career Professionals. And their goal was to basically highlight young professionals in the field, and then also kind of advocate for things that may not necessarily have been taught you know, in college. Um, so back, I think it was in 2013, they advertised this conference for early career professionals. Uh, I believe it was held in Austin, Texas that year. And I was really interested in going. So I went and I participated in that. And it, I found that to be really helpful 
um, you know, kind of, again, advocating for these young professionals who may not necessarily have a voice. So I kind of really got interested in it. So I kind of found my way to join the board the next year. And then I became part of all these different activities, including, you know, monitoring the social media accounts and, you know, co-chairing some of these conferences, um, participating in this thing called the Early Career Leadership Academy. And it, it, it did a couple things for me is one, it just it made me feel valued as a young professional in not only the society, but also in my job. It helped me prepare for certain things that, that again, you're not necessarily prepared for in college, like let's say salary negotiation or you know, workplace environment, conflict resolution, emotional intelligence. In, uh, it really helped build sort of these soft skills that we just don't necessarily learn. And you know, the other thing is that it just it made me feel valued in this community. This, you know these these colleagues in the weather water and climate enterprise were kind of sort of like you know the this sort of niche this group of people that we can all relate to and i just found that really important to me so you know i you know i'm technically from the ams standpoint is i'm actually not an early career professional anymore um i actually haven't been on the board for a couple of years but i i still value the, you know that their initiatives because it sort of helps you know prop those young professionals up yeah, and I agree. As I guess one of the increasingly older geezers in the community now, I mean, I, I love seeing more engagement from uh, young, early career student, mid-career professionals as well. I mean, as, as you well know, during my term as president of EMS, I was very adamant about engaging the full spectrum of the weather, water, and climate community as opposed to just going to the same people all the time. And by the way, shout out to Dr. Brad Johnson, one of my former students at University of Georgia, who's I know also very engaged in this activity. The last thing I want to focus on is you mentioned the CCM, the Certified Consulting Meteorologist. Um, I think you're probably one of the younger uh, CCMs, I would bet. I don't know the statistics at all, but I think most people are familiar with the CBM, the Certified Broadcast Meteorologist, because they see their TV meteorologist with CBM and AMS by their name when they watch TV. Uh, give us a little 101 quickly on the CCM. Yeah, it's a little different than the CBM. It's, you know, it stands for Certified Consulting Meteorologist. And it's sort of a way, at least the way I interpret it is it's sort of a way to sort of stand out amongst, you know, your peers. Um, it, you know, it has the word consulting in it. So when you think about consulting, it, it, you know, you think about forensic meteorology, you know, maybe going to court to, you know, as an expert witness to sort of, you know, talk about a specific weather event, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's, it's, it's really a professional certification and there's lots of different, um, you know, pieces that you can be a part of. You can be sort of an expert in radar meteorology. You can be an expert in, you know, winter weather, you can be an expert in hurricanes, you can be an expert in climatology. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting certification. And there's not there's not a lot of us as you kind of alluded to. So there's I think there's 700, maybe 800 CCMs total in the entire history going back to the 1950s. And right now there's only about 250 active. And, you know, I, you know, I was you know, I was in my low 30s when I when I when I got it, but I think that you know, and there's a lot of CCMs right now who might be a little bit older because maybe they get it more towards their retirement. 
But I think that paradigm's changing. I think you're seeing every year a lot more CCMs that are early career professionals. Um, you have to have at least five years experience before you even apply. And that's sort of the other piece is this application process. It, it's, it's pretty vigorous. It takes over a year. I, I kid you not, it takes over a year to do it. Um, there's sort of three pieces to it. There's your standard, standard application that, you know, typical you apply to you get letters or references then the second piece is sort of a written exam where they give you this is actually two parts they give you really extensive meteorology questions that you have to answer um, and then you also have to provide sort of a consulting report um, they give you a couple scenarios and then you have to kind of provide a, a report on that um, and then if you pass that then you get you do an oral exam which is closed door um, in front of a, a group of you know five or seven five to seven ccms um, and they you're in there for maybe an hour and a half to two hours and they're asking you, I mean, think of it as like a PhD defense, you know, you're getting asked tons of questions about your report, about your experience, about your expertise, um, and also your character, you know, they ask some ethics questions as well. Um, so yeah, it's a very extensive process, but then once you have it, you get this credential um, that you that you get to keep and it kind of, you know, the way I see, you know, a lot of people who have doctorates, you know, they have PhD at the end of their name. So for, for me, who doesn't have a PhD, this was a way sort of to, you know, to add, you know, these three letters to my name to help, you know, to be certified in some field. Yeah. And I, I know you can certainly with that CCM credential, you can, you can work in a lot of different ways and places in addition to what you currently do, because I, I, I'm not a CCM and I, because I do have PhD at the end of my name. I get a lot of calls from lawyers and companies wanting me to consult with them. And I, I usually pass them on to a CCM. In this case, my colleague Pam Knox at the University of Georgia is a CCM because I just don't do that type of forensic type work. That's not the work I do, but I, I certainly know that I get my share of requests. So uh, shout out to you for doing the CCM and for, I really encourage some of you that are listening that have the qualifications to take a look at the CCM. Jared, that's where we, this has been a great conversation and I knew it would be, time has flown. Can you tell us a little bit about where people can find you in social media or find out more about kicks or your, and all of these things that we've talked about? Yeah, so I work for the North Carolina Institute for Climate Studies, uh, NKICS for short. So you can just go to NKICS.org. That's ncics.org to learn more about some of the stuff we do. Um, and as we mentioned, I partner with NOAA's NCEI. So you can just go to uh, ncei.noaa.gov. They've got a lot of good visualizations on there and they have they provide monthly reports of you know, climate information and you can get information about the normals and they have some uh, cool graphical tools that you can play with. When it comes to social media, I mentioned that, you know, there's so much social media going on over the past 10 years, but I stick to one and that's Twitter. Um, so you can find me, it's uh, JJ Rennie on Twitter. That's J-J-R-E-N-N-I-E. And he's a good follow, by the way. I highly recommend him. And that's where we have to end it. But before we do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Dr. Judah Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a senior scientist at AER Incorporated. He is a snowstorm lover and obsessed with New England winters, especially the winter of 2014. And by the way, he's someone that I often recommend to the media and others when they want to talk about winter and polar vortex and all kinds of interesting things. Now, if you want to be the Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Jared, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Weather News Podcast.